All right, this is our last episode on weight loss this month. And this one is Lane Norton on the Huberman Lab podcast talking about identity change and all the non-food factors that go into the overall weight discussion. When you're talking about weight loss, people miss the point of exercise, I think. Yeah, there's some work that came out from Herman Ponser as well that basically showed like, well, if you do 100 calories from exercise, you have a like 28 calorie reduction in your basal metabolic rate in response to that. So it's kind of like this constrained energy expenditure model, right? But what I would say is, okay, well, there's still a net of 72, right? So it's still, it's still okay. And the other thing is, I think the effects of exercise on weight loss are actually more due to what it does to appetite. Um, so if you look at people who lose weight and keep it off for a number of years, kind of outliers because most people don't keep it off for years, over 70% of them engage in regular exercise. Of people who do not keep weight loss, uh, like maintain weight loss, less than 30% exercise regularly. So now that's just a correlation. That doesn't necessarily prove causation. But there are some pretty compelling studies showing that exercise increases your sensitivity to satiety signals. So basically, you can have the same satiety signals, but you're more sensitive to them when you exercise. And there's actually a really classic study um, from the 1950s in Bengali workers, where they looked at basically four different quadrants of activity. So you had sedentary, lightly active, moderately active, heavily active, basically based on their, their job choice. And they didn't have an intervention. They just wanted to track them and, and see how much, you know, how many calories did they actually eat. So it was like a J-shaped curve. So the sedentary actually ate more food than the lightly active or moderately active. But from lightly active to heavily active, they almost perfectly compensated how many calories they should be eating. So to me, that suggests when you become active, you can actually rep regulate your appetite appropriately or much more appropriately than if you're sedentary. And do you think this has to do with changes in the brain, brain centers that respond to satiety signals from the periphery um, and or do you think it has to do with uh, changes in blood sugar regulation? I, what I was taught, and I don't know if this is mm -hmm. still considered true, is that you know spikes in blood sugar will trigger a desire to eat more, even though it's kind of exactly the opposite of what you need when you have a spike in blood sugar. And there's this kind of, and we'll get into this when we talk about artificial sweeteners, there's this idea in mind. I think I adopted, perhaps falsely, that you, know, you eat something that's sweeter, that tastes really good, and, and you are suddenly on the train of wanting to eat more. Yeah. Um, and I could imagine how exercise... Um, if it is increasing the satiety signals, uh, could be working in a number of different ways. Yeah, I, I think it's a. I think the effect is probably mostly at the brain level. Um, you know, the the effects on blood sugar. The research out there is not very compelling for blood sugar driving uh, appetite. Now, if you become hypoglycemic, yes, you'll, you'll get hungry, but it's a different kind of hunger than like your normal, like I feel kind of empty and my stomach's growling. Like those are, they can go together, but usually like the hypoglycemia is like, I am hot. I feel like I'm going to pass out. Like you want to eat something not because your stomach's growling, but because you know that you just need some fuel. It's like you're getting pulled under. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've been there. I've been yeah. there when I've, uh, done longer fasts, something I don't do anymore, and drank a lot of black coffee. There was probably mm -hmm. an electrolyte effect there because coffee has you excrete sodium and other electrolytes. Yeah. 
and then just feeling like I needed something, this whole thing, like I need something, this kind of desperation. I, I, I never want to be back here again. <laughs> <laughs> Hypoglycemia is very uncomfortable. Uh, it's not fun. So, you know, again, I, when they, and when, then when they look at, you know, actual randomized control trials of implementing some exercise where they're, you know, pretty controlled environment, they typically see people, if, if anything, they eat less as opposed to eating more. Now, some people, again, that's, you know, studies report averages, right? And there's individual data points. So there are some people who at least anecdotally report that exercise makes them more hungry. That's completely valid. It's now, it could be their beliefs around it. It could be a number of different things, but it's important to understand that there is individual variability. And I think one of the things that I've learned to appreciate more is not trying to separate psychology and physiology. We, we do this a lot. It's like, well, I want to know the physiology. I don't care about the psychology of it. And it, now I'm kind of appreciating more psychology is physiology. You know, that like with most things now, we have kind of the biopsychosocial model. And I'll give you an example of this. A lot of people get really caught up with appetite. And if we could just suppress people's appetite, that's part of it. But people don't just eat because they're hungry. They eat for a lot of different reasons social reasons especially so can you remember the last social event you ever went to that didn't have food no right uh if you look at dinner plates from the 1800s they're about this big now how big are dinner plates the whole buffet right <laughs> right yeah um if you there's um situational cues right you're sitting down to watch tv oh grab some popcorn grab some you know snack whatever i even see this with it you know how uh, one person will pick up their phone and then everyone picks up their phone mm -hmm. i think there's a similar effect with food yeah. And, and same thing, right? Like how many times have we either done it ourselves or been uh, experienced people saying, oh, you should have some, you should have or like, you know, alcohol, especially, right? Like people, will. Um, uh, I was hanging out with somebody last night and I had a beer and they just had, you know, a water. And I'm like, I, I feel no need to try and convince them to do that with me. You know what I mean? But as humans, you know, we're, we're kind of herd animals. Like we don't want to be doing something out in isolation on our own. Now I'm, I'm, this is a very tenuous, I guess, belief of mine, but you know, doing things alone in isolation, you know, during kind of, you know, ancestral times, that's going to set off your alarm system, you know, because if you don't have other people, you can't protect yourself. Right? So typically things were done together in groups. And I think that's a lot of the reason why we tend to be just tribal in nature about a lot of things, right? So the whole point to that is, you know, on the list of reasons why people eat, I mean, I've gotten to the point where I think that hunger is actually not even the main reason people eat. Uh, you know, stress, um, lack of sleep. Boredom. Boredom. Yeah. Absolutely. So unless, you know, we can do something that addresses all those things, um, there's a, there's a line from a review paper. This review paper came out in 2011 by a researcher named McLean, and it's the best review paper I've ever read. It was called uh, Biology's Response to Dieting, the Impetus for Weight Regain, and basically went through all the mechanisms of these adaptations that happen during fat loss diets and how biology's response is to try to drive you back to your, your previous. And I'm going to butcher the quote, but at the end of the study, he said, basically, the body's systems are comprehensive, redundant, 
and well-focused on restoring depleted energy reserves. And any attempt or any kind of strategy for weight loss that doesn't attempt to address a broad spectrum of these things is going to fail. And so that's why when people say, well, just do low carb, you won't be hungry. I'm like, yeah, but people don't just eat because they're hungry. So I think really like trying to get outside the box and, and think about these things. And especially when you read some of the literature, I, I recently read a, a systematic review of successful weight loss maintainers, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so they took people who had lost a significant amount of body weight and kept it off for, for I think it was three years. And they basically asked them questions and tried to identify commonalities. And there were some things that I expected, like cognitive restraint, self-monitoring, um, you know, exercise. And then one of the things they said that I found really fascinating was pretty ubiquitous between people. They said, I had to develop a new identity. So are you familiar with Ethan Suplee? No. So Ethan is an actor. He's been in, like, Remember the Titans and uh, American History X. I certainly um, saw American History X. Yeah, so he was he was very large. Like, he was, like, 550 pounds. And now he's, like, 230 and jacked. Wait, he, he was five, He was how 550 pounds. Wow. Um, and he has it. Whenever he puts up posts on his Instagram of him training, it'll say, I killed my clone today. And I asked him, like, is this what you're talking about? Like, creating a new identity. And he said, this is exactly what I'm talking about because I had to kill who I was because there was no way I was going to be able to make long-term changes if I just didn't become a new person because there's, I mean, and addicts talk about this, right? Like um, people for, who were alcoholics, they had to get new friends. They had to hang out at different places because their entire life had been set up around this lifestyle for alcohol. And I would actually argue that eating disorders or disordered eating patterns is much harder to break than other forms of addiction. And think about food addiction. Well, in some ways, bulimia and anorexia are still addictions. You can't stop eating. Like if you're an alcoholic, you can abstain from alcohol. If you become addicted to say cocaine, you can abstain from that. You can never abstain from food. And so now imagine telling a gambling addict, well, You've got to play this slot, you know, a couple times a day, but no more. Like that's, that's really challenging. So, um, yeah, I just like all this stuff. It's so important to be comprehensive with how we treat these things. Uh, these are incredibly important points. And to my knowledge, I don't think anyone has really described it uh, in a cohesive way, the way that you're doing here. So important for people to understand this because obviously as a neuroscientist, I think, you know, the nervous system is creating our thoughts, our thoughts are, and feelings are related to psychology. And therefore, of course, our physiology and our psychology are one in the same, it's bi-directional. Now there's, nowadays, there's a lot of interest in brain body, in particular gut brain yep. uh, access, and we, we can talk about that. But I, I really appreciate that you're spelling out how there are these different variables. Each one can account for a number of different things. Exercise clearly has a remarkably potent effect both during the exercise in terms of caloric burn, overall health and biomarkers. And then um, this is wonderful to learn that it can increase the sensitivity to, uh, to satiety signals. Uh, I think uh, that makes, at least in my mind, places it very high on the list of things that people should absolutely do. But that there are other factors too. Um, and the identity piece 
is fascinating. Um, it reminds me also, your story reminds me also of David Goggins, who is, chief, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, he talks about his former very overweight self, yep. almost as if it was a different person. Yep. Um, and he uses language that I'm not going to use here. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I've I know, met David, know David a bit, and he's, he's every bit as intense and driven as, and a remarkable human being as he appears to be uh, online. He is that guy. Um, but it does seem like he had to more or less kill off a, a former version of himself and, and continues to do that every day. And I think what your point about the, this other fellow who did, um, does, it, uh, does it through a similar process, I, the word today seems to really matter. It's not like you uh, defeat this former version of yourself and then that, that, per- that person is buried and gone. You said, you know, I killed my clone today. And that's the way that David talks about it also. So this is a daily process. And I think um, this is not just a small detail in tying together all these things. I think that what you are describing is, is fundamental because we can pull on each one of these variables and talk about each one of them. But at the end of the day, we're a cohesive whole as, a, as an individual. In, um, sorry, you were about no, to that, say. That gets, that's good, actually, into one of my, my favorite topics, which is, you know, why do we have such a hard time with losing weight, but more so keeping it off? Because of obese people, six out of every seven obese people will lose a significant amount of body weight in their life. So why do we still have an obesity problem? They don't keep it off. Why don't they keep it off? When you look at the research, basically what it suggests is because people think about, I'm going to do a diet and I'm going to lose this weight and they do not give any thought to what happens afterwards, right? It's like, think about if you have some kind of chronic disease or a diabetic, right? You, you can't just take insulin once and that's it, right? You got to take it continuously. Otherwise, you're going to have problems. Um, if you do a diet and you lose, you know, uh, 30 pounds, fantastic. But if you then just go back to all your old habits, you're going to go back to where you were, if not more. Uh, you, can't, you can't create a new version of yourself while dragging your old habits and behaviors behind you. So what I'll tell people is, because people say, well, I'm doing a carnivore diet or I'm doing this diet or that diet. And I'll say, that's fine. Do you see yourself doing that for the rest of your life? And if the answer is yes, if you, if you really believe that that's going to be sustainable for you, and plenty of people low carb, intermittent fasting, whatever, they say, uh, felt easy. You know, I could do this forever. Great. What, if you're going to lose weight, you have to invoke some form of restriction, whether it is a nutrient restriction, like low carb, low fat, a time restriction, intermittent fasting, any form of time restricted eating, or calorie restriction, tracking macros, whatever. So you, you, get, you get to pick the form of restriction. So pick the form of restriction that feels the least restrictive to you as an individual and also do not assume that it will feel the same for everybody else because I made this mistake where it's like I, I track things. And so I, I allow myself to eat a variety of foods. I allow myself to eat some fun foods, uh, but I track everything and I'm able to modify my body composition and be in good health doing that. Now, it doesn't feel hard for me. Like part of it is I've just been doing it for so long. But to other people, that's very stressful. They don't want to, they say, well, I'd rather just not eat for, you know, 16 hours. If that feels easy for them, do that. Because the one thing that, there was a couple of meta-analysis on uh, popular diets. And basically what they showed was they were all equally terrible for for long-term weight loss. But when they stratified them by adherence, and none of them were better for adherence overall, 
But when they stratified people just according from lowest adherence to best adherence, it was a linear effect on weight loss. So really what it says is, what is the diet that's going to be easiest for you to adhere to in the long term? And you should probably do that. And people, again, this is where I step back and take the 10,000 foot view. Somebody will say, well, I'm going to do ketogenic because I want to increase my fat oxidation and I want to do this. And they're talking about all these mechanisms and everything. And that's great. Can you do it for the rest of your life? Right. Is that, is this going to be something sustainable for you? And if the answer is no, you probably need to rethink what your approach is going to be. It's incredibly important message. Um, basically that, you know, if I could yeah. highlight, you know, if there was a, a version of highlighter, boldface and underline in, uh, in the podcast space, I, I would highlight boldface and underline what you just said. Um, and for those of you that heard it, uh, listen to it twice and then go forward because it's absolutely key. I think it also explains a lot of the so-called controversy that exists out there. I think um, it also crosses over with the placebo effect. I almost want to say, um, pick the, the nutrition plan that you think you can uh, stick to for for a long period of time, ideally forever, and pick your placebo too, because there's there is a lot of placebo woven into each and every one of these things: intermittent fasting, uh, keto, probably even um, vegan versus omnivore versus carnivore. Well, they right? even talk about um, you know the diet honeymoon period, right? Where like you go into a diet and you're all fired up about it, and like you're very adherent, and then what happens with every single diet, without exception in research studies, is once you get past a few months, adherence just starts waning. And going off here, we are really talking about a form of relationship. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that to be tongue in cheek. Actually, we had a guest early on in the podcast, Dr. Carl Dyserath. He's a psychiatrist and um, bioengineer at Stanford, um, tremendously successful Lasker award winner, et cetera. And he talked about love as a sort of a, a, an interesting aspect of our psychology where it's a story that you co-create with somebody, but that you live into the future of that story. You know, when mm. you pair up with somebody that we was referring to romantic love, mm -hmm. that there's this sort of mutual agreement to create this, this idea that you're going to live into. So it's not just about how you feel in the moment. It's also that you project into the future quite a lot. I'm seeing a lot of parallels with um, a highly functional and effective diet. And, um, and I love it. I'm not setting this parallel up artificially. I'm setting up because I think that ultimately it boils uh, down to what you said earlier, which is that the brain and our decisions about what we are going to stick to are tremendously powerful.